Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, this episode of Other People is brought to you by Audible, the world's leading provider of digital audiobooks. Over at audible.com, there are hundreds of thousands of titles available in a wide variety of genres, and you can play them on just about any digital listening device in existence, whether it's an iPhone, a Kindle, an Android, you name it. And here's the deal right now, for listeners of this program, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30 day trial. Go get a book by Cormac McCarthy. Go get a book by Philip Roth. Just about any book at Audible can be yours, free of charge. And if you do this, if you go get the free audiobook, well, that helps the program. I get a few nickels. It's enjoyable. To download your free audiobook, just go to audibletrial.com slash other people. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash other people. This is a great deal. It is available right now. These are books. You can listen to them, go and get them. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, everybody, right. here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is happening over here. This is happening over there. Thank you for listening. Thanks for your attention. My name is Brad Listy. I am a man in Los Angeles. I have a microphone. And last night, uh, I had a powerful dream. I had a very vivid, powerful dream that a friend of mine had a child. And I delivered that child in a public setting in emergency fashion with no obstetric training whatsoever. That's what I can tell you. The details are foggy. Uh, it happened in a restaurant of all places. I think it was a fast food restaurant. It was brightly lit. It was me and my friend's fetus, and the fetus was emerging. It was crowning. There was a salad bar. It was greasy. Uh, well, the, like the salad bar itself wasn't greasy, but the fetus, the actual fetus was greasy it was a little boy, uh, a beautiful little boy, about seven or eight pounds. And uh, I'm not entirely sure how I know how much the fetus weighed <laughs> in my dream, but it looked like a seven or eight pounder, a, a good quality seven or eight pound fetus. And that's pretty much all I can tell you. It was just a very vivid neurological experience. 
very vivid dream, which is why I'm telling you about it. And I don't know what it means. Like, I know you can parse these things. Does it mean that I'm about to have another kid? Is that what's happening? Is that my fate? Is that why I'm dreaming these things? I have no idea. It, was, it wasn't like my wife uh, was having the baby. Am I going to impregnate uh, my friend? I certainly don't think so. You know, it's a very strange thing, these dreams. What happens? Uh, suddenly I'm an obstetrician. I'm delivering fetuses in fast food restaurants. Uh, I don't even know how to put that together. So it was a good Christmas. I got through it. Family was in town. My little sister, uh, her fiance, they're getting married in the spring. It was good to see them. We, uh, what did we do? I had to assemble a dollhouse for my daughter. I didn't even really do much of the assembly. My brother-in-law-to-be handled much of the Allen wrenching and assembly. And then there was a lot of strange manly talk about the dollhouse and about its construction if that makes any sense, like guys talking about building stuff and putting stuff together and using all these kind of guy terms, but what we were building and what we were putting together was a dollhouse, which sort of uh, robbed it of all of its uh, masculinity, all of its power. But my daughter was thrilled with it. She's very happy. She has a dollhouse. So that was good. Uh, what else? I don't know. It's the end of the year. Another year come and gone. They go fast, I feel like. They just slip away. Oh, God. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Uh, my guest today is Brian Allen Carr. He is the author of the award-winning story collection Short Bus, and his new collection, Vampire Conditions, is now available from Holler Presents. It is great to have him here on the program. I'm excited about it. Uh, so let's get started, shall we? Ladies and gentlemen, this right here is Brian Allen Carr, author of Vampire Conditions. <laughs> I am currently in Westlaco, Texas, which is a town of about 30,000 people, um, about 10 miles north of the Rio Grande River, and about uh, 40 miles west of the Gulf of Mexico, in my office at South Texas College. Um, yeah, sitting at a desk. 
Okay, so like, talking on the phone. I, like, pardon, <laughs> pardon my, pardon my. Uh, I can't get my brain to work, you know, geographically at this point. But like, so sure. we're, we're talking Texas. Like, you're over towards Houston. No, no, not at all. Houston's not at all. About seven hours away from me. Um, yeah, no, like I'm at the lowest tip of Texas, uh, down toward Brownsville, which you know nobody really knows where that is either. But uh, yeah, I mean, I'm right right along Mexico. Okay, and is it, um, is it beautiful? Is it beautiful? If you look at it with the right eyes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's in the eye. Yeah. You know. But the thing is, is that like uh, I've seen movies, you know, recently that were filmed in Texas, and there are like in San Antonio. I feel like the land outside of San Antonio is really gorgeous. There's uh, well, Texas is is, is broken up uh, geographically into what they kind of call five little sections. Um, uh, you know, the hill country, which is San Antonio and Austin is pretty remarkable in terms of, you know, there's some undulating land. Hills uh, is perhaps a liberal term uh, for what they have. I mean, there are hills, but it's, uh, by comparison to some other places, not so much. And then out west toward El Paso, like Marfa, uh, which is where I believe they shot a good portion of No Country for Old Men. It has that sort of desert stoic beauty with, you know, uh, uh, mountains in the distance and whatnot. Uh, south of here, uh, south uh, west of here, about uh, two hours drive is a town called Monterey, which is you know got mountains and is beautiful. Here they call it a valley. They call it Rio Grande Valley, but it's not. It's a river delta. It was kind of like a, a marketing term that they used back in the uh, 40s, 50s, and 60s to get people to come down here. I think they'd say you know it's a uh, it's like California and Florida all rolled up in one into a magic valley is what they would say. <laughs> and, uh, but it's not really a valley. It's a lot of like, you know, citrus farming down here, fairly flat. Um, the beaches at South Padre Island though, which are our closest beaches are really pretty. Yeah. Um, but for the most part, you know, it, it's, it's farmland. Okay. Now does, is there any menace? You know, there's also like, this is the other thing that happens and I'm getting all of this from popular culture and movies, but like, mm-hmm. you know, border towns, is, is there any of that sort of like noir thing happening or is that, uh, simply? Oh. No, I mean, it's, it's around, uh, uh, you know, uh, there are shootouts often, but like right across the river, you can go across to the border towns. And, and, you know, I think the last time I went was a week and a half ago, me and my wife and kid went over for lunch, right? We had tacos and, uh, and just kind of, uh, hung out. Um, yeah, there's definitely a noir element to it. You know, it's, uh, uh, there's a drug war going on in in Mexico. It doesn't, it does kind of seep over, but it's very specific, it seems to me, toward people who are sort of caught up in to the violence. Once it gets across the river, um, definitely there are more uh, innocent bystanders south of us. Um, but, you know, here it's it's a pretty safe family-driven area. Okay, I was going to say, because this is the thing about it, is that, like, I live in Los Angeles, and it's like certain people, you say that you live in Los Angeles, and it's like, Oh my God! It you know it must be insane and crazy, and it's like no, sure. it's, it's really not. Like you know, like there's it's, that, that sort of stuff happens. But when you live someplace and you're sort of there on on the ground on a day to day basis, um, you know, there's there, there are few places in the world that are really that dangerous. Like maybe in certain parts of Syria right now, you know. Like, sure. But, but I, I don't know. You just you know what you see on the news is obviously news, and it's bad news usually. And so what you see. Um, you know, when it comes to Mexico and the drug war and the border towns and the violence, uh, is pretty spectacular. And, you know, I think, that- well, it, I mean, not to undersell it 
or not to definitely south of here, you know, and in like towns like Juarez, which is right across from El Paso. And even in Reynosa, I mean, they'll have shootouts with the cops that involve grenades and things of that nature. Um, but it, again, it is across the river. Um, and there's definitely, you know, the river is a filter, very much so. And then even north of here, there's another checkpoint, uh, you know, about 40, eh, I guess a little more than 45 miles north of here in Fall Furious. Um, and there's another checkpoint where there's kind of like a language filter there, you know, so... Where I live, I always like to say it's like kind of between the dogs. It's between the checkpoint, you know, going north and between the river going south. And, um, uh, right, so you have a lot more influence of the culture from Mexico, but a lot less of, of, of the kind of violence. There's really not much, you know, like petty violence or anything here. We do have home invasions some, but, yeah, you got to kind of be wrapped up into that world, I think, to to get in on that end of stuff. Yeah, no, it was just funny. I was just in my car a little while ago, and I was driving around listening to the radio, and there was some sort of report on the um, the crime statistics, violent crime statistics, I think, in the United States over the past, you know, whatever, half a century. And, like, it's gone down, like, rem- you know, remarkably. Like, the, it's mm-hmm. almost, you know, urban areas. Like, that sort of stuff, thankfully, and knock on wood, you know, it doesn't happen very often, <laughs> you know, surprisingly, yeah, you, yeah you're right. You, I think, mean, you think about 300 million people sharing space or, you know, you, it's, it's sort of amazing that like, you know, there aren't, there isn't more violence, especially in places like Los Angeles or New York or these like really high, uh, concentration population zones. You know, it's, it's sort of an, it's sort of like a miracle that people don't just beat the shit out of each other. <laughs> sure. Well, and I, you know, I think to a certain extent, because we, have done such a good job of broadcasting every time there is a violent act, right? It kind of scares people indoors or, you know, away from, away from those situations a little bit more. I think there's a heightened anxiety to it all that kind of has made us safer beings and that we're, you know, more aware of that we can be hurt. Well, no, yeah, plus, like you say, we're all shut-ins now. As long as we don't. Yeah, as pretty much. As... Right. We got our, we have our devices and our air conditioning and, uh, and there you go. As long as we don't interact, there will be no violence. <laughs> That's the solution. Just keep everybody. There you go. Just keep, keep them indoors. Yeah, just keep them indoors just, happy, just, safe. Just shout at your flat screen, ladies and gentlemen. It's all going to be over soon. Um, but yeah, like December 21st, right? right? We don't even have, not even 30 days. Now people might go. not even hear this podcast. It'll, it'll be a nuclear holocaust by the 21st. Uh, oh, let's keep our fingers crossed. Yeah, please. Let's just end this fucking nightmare. Um <laughs> So anyway, let's talk about. It sounds like you have a little bit of a southern accent. So this is your this is your home turf. Are you are you from Texas? Uh, I'm, yeah, I'm from Texas. I was born in Austin and then grew up all over Texas. Um, uh, my folks live in a town called Corpus Christi, which is a couple hours further up the coast. Right. I've only lived outside of Texas for a year of my life. I lived in Vermont. Okay. What was that like? <laughs> uh beautiful cold yeah, yeah 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 dark you know dark in the winter that was kind of a thing about vermont that i couldn't necessarily take the the cold you kind of can acclimate to but i just remember in the winter you know i was up there for culinary school and i would go to i would go to school in the dark and i would leave in the dark and that kind of sat funny on me. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> when used to that. Now, you know, not, like this is like I don't mean to talk too much about weather, especially being from Los Angeles. That's all right. You know, the, it matters. Like climate matters. Sure. Like I like I, you know, climate change that matters, but uh where you live, you know, like the not only like the uh the what's the word I'm looking for? Sociological crime. Sure. 
you know, the <laughs> kind of community that you're in, that sort of climate matters. But also like, you know, I, to me, sunlight and being able to go outdoors and without having to scra- yeah. scrape my car off, like those are things that I appreciate. It, it, yeah. It changes the ceremony of your life or whatever. Like, for instance, like here, right, it's hot, really, really hot in the summer. Um, so we all, as opposed to up north, we gain weight in the summertime, right, because we don't do as much, right. <laughs> right? We lose weight in the winter, me and all my friends, you know, because that's when it's really pleasant, you know, and when you want to be outside. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So maybe, like, in the summers have got to be just sweltering, right? I mean, you're talking. Uh, yeah, you know, we'll have – Oh man, last last year was brutal. Um, I think we had something like thirty days of you know triple digit heat. Oh, yeah, and, I remember uh, that. I remember seeing that on the news and just being like, oh. yeah, it was rough. I mean, last summer and this summer wasn't quite as bad. Well, maybe it was. I spent some time in Indiana this summer, so maybe I missed a little bit of the worst part of it. But yeah, summers are not. You get used to it, and even when they first come, you you enjoy it. Probably just like the first snow, yeah. right? The first time you walk into, you know, walk outside and you get that like real super dry heat, you kind of feel banging around inside your lungs, right? Like you maybe like it for a week or two, and it brings out a whole lot of you know smells that you don't necessarily always smell. But then, yeah, definitely a couple of weeks into it, it's pretty brutal. And then it's just by Super. by August, it's just that's the dog days. That's when it's just it's, it's yeah, you just want it to be done. <clears throat> and then this year, I mean, this year it didn't really break until. Uh, man, I think even two weeks ago we had almost 100 degrees. Jesus. So yeah, this year it broke really late. Usually, usually around uh, Halloween, we have one cold front that kind of just figures a way to stay. Um, this year we had a cool front a little before Halloween, but then nah, man, it it it, uh, it warmed back up. So yeah, well, the, you know, everything's changing, man. My sister lives in Chicago and. She's like, you know, we didn't even really have a winter last year. Like, there's some weird stuff yeah. happening when it comes to the climate, and like, I, you just don't know what form it's going to take. I, maybe people do. Maybe there are like actual accurate predictors, but I think a lot of it's just sort of a question mark, and it's freaky. You know, it's freaky. <clears throat> well, you know, I mean, again, December twenty first, man. That's right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> um, Next summer's going to kick ass. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I should warn you. Uh, you can't make me laugh because I have this cough, and if you make me laugh, I'm going to start like uh, wheezing. Uh, I saw that. Uh, you've been sick for like a while, right, dude? It, I don't know what this is. Like my wife and I have it. Bubonic uh, plague, man. No, we have. You know, we have a two. Year, we have a two year old, and she goes to school, and she comes home. Oh with yeah, that. Yeah, you. You. Yeah, and did she just start going? Yeah, well, she's fine, of course. Now she's she's been better. For no, days. yeah, but she's a she's a she harbinges, right? Like yeah. she brings it all back to you, you yeah. know. Yeah, she's looks like a petri dish. So we just catch. You'll it. be better. You, yeah, I remember that happening when my kid was about. Yeah, when she when my kid first started going to school, I would catch everything. Right. You know that she had. So we've been fighting it, but like it, and it's fine except when somebody makes me laugh. And of course, like I had a meeting this morning and. I'm talking, I'm sitting there talking to somebody and then like I start laughing and I don't want the person to think that I have this like, you know, like tuberculosis. Exactly. This t- don't make me laugh. <laughs> Call you a longer. <laughs> exactly. So I'm just like trying. So, yeah, I'm sorry. Like you, you told me not to make you laugh and now I'm trying to do everything I can possibly do. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's to get a chuckle out of it's you. Very delicate. <laughs> I want to hear you die on the phone. Man. <laughs> right, that's the goal now. Not be satisfied until he's fully asphyxiated, but. <laughs> um, but no, but it's just funny because, you know, there, there are socially uh, appropriate moments to laugh. And yet I find myself repressing it 
and then, sure. you, then you start coughing and then the person's like, why did you stay, you know, why did you even stick with this meeting if you knew you were sick? And like, you know, it's this whole psychological thing. Well, then you just have to tell them it's your job to spread the disease, That's right? Your part. I'm not doing this alone. You know, I'm not, if, I'm going, if I'm going down, I'm taking people with me. Yeah, that's the way it has to be, man. That's it. Can't die alone. That's, that's just a, sad. That's the law of the jungle. <laughs> um, so let's talk about Texas. Like you said, you uh, you grew up all over, all over the state. So like, please tell yeah. me your dad was like an oil man or something. Please tell me. Preacher. That. Preacher. Dad was a preacher. Even better. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, preacher, Presbyterian. When I was born, he was in the Presbytery in Austin, and then <clears throat> from there, there was a <clears> – <throat> sorry, man. See, you're giving me your call off <laughs> right. via the telephone. Right. Then there, <laughs> then there was a church in Galveston and Houston and Dallas and Corpus Christi uh, where he doesn't preach anymore. He's a chaplain now, so he works with hospitals. Um, but that's kind of what kept us moving around when I was a kid. Okay, so talk to me about your <clears throat> experience. Uh, like, like that's an interesting upbringing. Your father's a holy man. You know what I'm saying? Like, you grew up in the church. You grew up steeped in that. Uh, I wasn't raised Presbyterian, so I don't know exactly what that means. But, like, did you have a positive experience, or were you, um, were you in some way, like, you know, did you rebel against it? I uh, probably rebelled. I think there's only two tracks to take, you know. I mean, I, m most every preacher kids I meet, they're either going to be – Right, extremely into it, um, and maybe even become preachers or whatever when they grow up, or they're going to be extremely resistant to it. And I was pro I was resistant to it, you know. Um, from how, from what age? Which in some ways my dad facilitated because I think he didn't want me to feel like I had to do what he did or think what he thought. Um, and he, you know, in, in some ways I wish that he kind of would have, uh, you know put a little bit more of the of the Bible learning into us, you know, because he didn't make us do stuff like, you know, memorize verses and, you know, it wasn't like, you know, you need to know all the books of the Bible backwards and forwards or whatever. Um, definitely grew up around all the Bible stories, going to church, being in the choir and all that kind of stuff. Um, but it wasn't, uh, you know, his duty or whatever to, to try to make us enthralled with it or to be, um, you know, like calling cards for him by representing, you know, his knowledge of the, of the Bible through our own social endeavors or whatever. Yeah. But that sounds, that sounds noble to me. And it also seems to indicate strength of faith because, uh, you know, how strong can someone's faith be if, you know, whether or not other people believe exactly what they believe Oh sure. Do you know what I'm saying? Like there, are, but there, are, there's a lot of that. It's like you know that people feel threatened if people have divergent ways of thought or whatever, and that happens in families all the time. So that's that sounds cool, you know. Oh yeah, no, Dad's very uh, much not. I mean, he he's you know he he's real spiritual. He's a Christian, but I mean, he definitely has issues with um, the structure of religion, you know, quite a bit. And, uh, you know, he, yeah, he was always a very big proponent of, you know, questioning everything. Um, I have a theory. It, what's that? I mean, like with regard to religion, <laughs> Sure. <laughs> but you know, and tell me if you disagree, but like, okay. I, I can't help but believe that the continued existence of, uh, these organized religions <laughs> is going to be, is going to have to, at some point in the not too distant future, be predicated upon some fairly, significant changes in the dogma well i mean they're already talking about the you know you hear certain 
people coming to the foreground who are saying, you know, certain things that we're saying are clearly scaring folks off (laughs) and maybe we need to retool our, our package. The other thing is, is that they've never really done is they only have really one method of recruitment, right? And it's this very sort of in your face way. Uh, right. And um, I mean, I'm a teacher, you know, and I know that, right, like certain people are going to learn things different ways. Right. Um, right. Like like be it like they're audio learners or whatever. If I was so totalitarian in the way that I taught English, um, the percentage of the people in my class, right, who would pass or be engaged or anything would would dwindle because right, I mean, you have to. You do have to diversify both your, your, you know, they can't diversify their message, but I think they have to diversify the way that they send it out, broadcast it, right? Because the the notion that it's like, you know, come here and be with us or die the bad death, uh, that's not going to, you know, you know, not everybody's going to be able to buy into that. A lot of say. people who are passive aggressive or whatever are going to be like, Oh, what the hell ever! I'll just die the bad death. You know, right. <laughs> right. I mean, it's a tough sell. It, yeah. They have to change, like you said, they have to change the sales pitch. And like I just think, and you see a little, like you see it happening around the edges. But I just wonder, like at, at what point when you see that you know, like the uh, every once in a while I'll read a story in the news and it's like you know statistics about membership um, sure. are receding like dramatically and have been receding dramatically in like Western Europe for a long, long time, and that's been happening in the United States as well. Like at some point, you know, the, these churches, um, you know, the the bigger churches are businesses, like the Roman Catholic Church, which is what I grew up in. Like, well, I mean, they're all they're all in some way, shape, or form a business, right? And I mean, but some of them on like a grand scale, like with the Roman. Catholic oh yeah, yeah, some of them have, have you know golden chairs. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, yeah. And at some point, they're going to look at the numbers and they're going to go, okay, uh, how do we adjust? You know, and so all of a sure. sudden. You just wonder, like, because it's going to require the dismantling of what was previously sacred, and I, which is, I mean, but that's happened. That's happened plenty of times before, right? They've changed their mind plenty of times, which, but right. un, you know, unfortunately, in this age, age of information or whatever, um, they're incapable of being transparent just because they've been around for so long. And because they are supposed to be infallible, especially like say the Roman Catholic Church, right? I mean, the, the the Pope is supposed to be able to talk to God, right? And so when you know, and if you can easily Google, right, like dumb shit a Pope has done, right. you know, and the, right, uh, and you know, stuff comes up where it's like, you know, was a great proponent of the African slave trade, you know, it's like, uh, <laughs> how do you talk to God again? Right. Like, what, how did what that, was that? What was that number? You know, what were you? Yeah, calling? what was that phone number, man? So what called? Because that must have just been a bad week for God or something, you know, <laughs> a bad phone conversation. But <laughs> you know, but, but I think that's kind of a portion of it too, where I, you know, I think they're going to have to embrace the idea of of being fallible you know, a little bit more and maybe shed some of that language about being, I mean, this is all, you know, every religious, uh, you know, figure, I think they're going to have to come up front a little bit more and right. Just be like, you know, I am incapable of telling you exactly everything that is correct, but I'm going to try, you know, and I don't think that they really do that so much yet. And hopefully they will, but who knows? Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. And I also think like when you talk about infallibility of the, of the clergy or whatever, 
like I, I also long for somebody to, to admit the humanity of like Jesus. Like that's something that bothers, you know, just bugs the shit out of me. It's like, you know, listen, he was a really cool guy. It sounds like who was brilliant and uh, yeah. possibly like enlightened. It's hard to, t- I mean, there's so, it's so hard to tell, frankly, because it happened so long ago, pre-printing press. And like, it's just hard yeah. for me to really like wrap my head around it in a completely solid way. But like, I have no reason not to believe that Jesus was like an extremely charismatic, influential, peace loving sure. human being. But the, the, the truth of the matter is, is that he lived to be 33. So he'd had to have gotten off at least once or he would have had a prostate issue. Yeah. Right. That's the I mean, thing. you know, like, yeah, or, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, definitely. And but whatever. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> or something. Yeah, you know. <laughs> I just, I just want, yeah, I just want, I want to hear like, uh, I want to hear that said. I want to, I want to see those changes uh, for some reason because they've always frustrated. But it, it, it probably, it, it won't. It, I doubt it'll happen in our lifetime because you can even see, you know, it's, it's one of those things where they, they just keep ramping it up on the other side. Anytime they feel like they lose ground on anything, right? I heard this really interesting NPR the other day. Like Americans are more apt to lie about going to church, right, than any other. <laughs> society right like so they'll like if you ask an american right do you go to church every sunday they'll say yes right but then they decided to like kind of like query them differently it's like you know what were you doing on friday morning what were you doing on saturday morning what were you doing on sunday morning right and then they were more likely to to say right and the, the percentages of people who go to right church in the united states are about the same as the percentages of people who go to church in like europe and stuff but like Forty percent of Americans will say I go all the time, <laughs> but it's really just like fifteen, you know. And it's kind of about the same that it is in Europe or whatever. Um, so I, you know, maybe they already are thinking about it, but they just don't know right how to let go of that rhetoric yet. You know, you know what I mean? Like right. that's got to be a thing that's hard to let die. Um, and I mean, I'm sure that's got to take generations. Well, yeah, the, the tradition, the rhetoric, the ritual, everything. But I think that yeah. the, I think like, and this is, I mean, this is the irony of it is that I'm not affiliated. I don't practice anything. Um, I have, a, you know, uh, as you can probably sense, a lot of like intellectual uh, questions or whatever. But sure. like, I'm t- I'm thinking about the actual survival of the thing because I do think like certain parts of the ritual are great. I do think that um, the community. Well, how I, you you have a little girl, a little boy, a little girl. And do you think about taking her to church? Is that kind of absolutely not? Like, yeah, am, am I, no, not at all. Not See, at I've all. taken my kid a few times, you know, and I, I don't go, and I, I don't really like it. I mean, to be a hundred percent honest with you, and yeah, uh, I haven't really gone since. Golly, I used to listen to my dad preach, and that was—I don't think he's preached in fifteen years or something. And uh, the, the only thing that I like about it, you know, for my for the kid's sake, is just like this idea of an activity learning music. There's all these really, really great things that are built into it. And then just to, you know, give her something, a philosophy to question, even right if that's not the philosophy she wants to follow. But I think that everybody has to at least have a philosophy to question. Yeah, no, I think like I... But I, then I go on Sunday morning, I'm like, God damn, dude. I should have brought a book. Where's my Kindle? <laughs> should have drank a Bloody Mary before I came here or something, you know? Should yeah. have brought a book. <laughs> you know, the Bible's pretty all right if you stick to the Old Testament. It's got some, you know, good uh, killing scenes and everything. Judges is a ridiculously violent book. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, so I, I think like from a parent, you know, from a parental perspective, I think like I will expose her if she asks to go because like, my parents still go. My sisters probably still sure. go. You know, like I'm kind of the only one in the family who sort of strayed uh, fully. 
and vocally. Um, but, uh, you know, I don't mind her being exposed, but I'm not going to, uh, you know, make her go every week or anything. Like if she wants to check it out, just to see, yeah, you know, yeah, or, yeah. or she wants to go to a synagogue or she wants to go to like a Buddhist, I, I would love for her to see all that stuff. But I kind of think it's the kind it's the, you know, to me, it's something that you have to figure out individually. And I don't think there are any, like, I have no answers for her in any kind of ultimate way. And I think like, if there's some sort of practice, um, you know, that works for her, great. But what I'm frightened of is that, you know, you start taking her to church to give her that sort of, you know, philosophy to question or that structure or whatever. Um, you know, when I was a kid, there's a lot of crazy shit pumped into my head. And that's something that like bothers me to this day. And I don't, you know, that would Yeah, be- but you know. Crazy shit's good to have, too. Well, yeah, <laughs> cartoons are fucked up, you know? I mean, it's not like... I know what you're saying. I know what you're saying. And, like, you want to shield them from certain things that maybe you think that you it took you time to overcome. Right. Uh, and, I, you know, I, I get that, too. I, I, it's always weird because you question, like, you know, what if this didn't happen to me? Or, like, you know, would would I be in a better spot? Or I don't, it's always so hard to say. Like, what if that stuff hadn't happened to you? And then, like, you would have become, like, a real asshole. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, but that's the thing, too. I mean, it makes you question. Like, it does give you a sense of morality and good and bad. And, then, like, I did have, like, you know, fear that if I was bad, I, you know, you know th- maybe that did something. I don't know. But I tend to think that and, – and I ha- and I actually feel f- fairly strongly about this because I have plenty of friends who were raised without it who have every bit the morality that I do, if not more. Yeah. It's, you can learn morality from Aesop's fables. Yeah. You know, I mean, you can learn morality from – all kinds of different texts. It doesn't necessarily need to be one where you, uh, uh, you know, drink wine, uh, you know, write a thimble of wine on Sunday morning right. and pretend like it's blood. Um, <laughs> right. there's, there's a lot, there's a lot of different ways you can learn to be not a dick, I guess. Yeah. I guess, yeah. So I'm going to try to branch out with her, but it's, you know, it's a big question and it's a, like, you know, when you have a kid and you're, uh, responsible for for bringing them up and you just, I, I'm just going to try to do the best I can and to be as honest as I can with her within the context of, uh, her age and her personality and her situation, you know, every kid's, yeah, for so sure. It's the best I can do, but I'm, I'm not going to pretend that I, you know, this is it. I, this is the place we go on Sunday and we've got it all figured out. Like that's just not, <laughs> it's not happening. You know what you should do is take that path. All right. With your daughter, right? Like your first kid, be like that, right? Yeah. Don't make her go to church much or anything. But your next kid, man, you take <laughs> that kid to church every damn day of the week, right? And then, like, you can see, right? You can test your theory out and see how it goes. Yeah, yeah. Just make one kid. <laughs> Just my religion. Yeah, that would be an interesting thing. Yeah, have seven kids, but only make one of them go to church all the time, right? And name them some ridiculously... Like you know, like biblical name like Malachi <laughs> or something, and uh, you got to do that. Brad. That's what you got to do. <laughs> you know that would honestly be very very interesting. And I wonder, you know, like they would it would be twisted as a parent if there's some sort of like parent who's like a, you know, social scientist or something who who did. Oh no, I'm gonna figure out a way to have six more kids so I can do this too. We can compare notes at the end there. You know, be a lifetime project. It will be, you know, but it, we can videotape it. It'll be a reality show later on. We'll be billionaires, <laughs> man. Right. See, that's the thing. To, to get ahead in this world, you just have to be an asshole, you know? And this sounds like just the kind of cutting-edge asshole stuff well, you have you got to do, man, you, to get in the limelight. You have to be willing to treat your children like uh, science experiments, essentially. Yeah, yeah, that's the new thing, man. That's the new th- I mean, look at... Uh, What's the, you know, the Kardashians, right? I mean, there it is. 
Right? They have they have a, a Kmart line. Don't you want a Kmart line, Brad? <laughs> don't you, know don't you want like Listy's lingerie or something? Okay, okay let me stop you here because I've actually thought about this. I live in Los Angeles and I'm surrounded by this, and I'm probably more conscious of it than I should be or than most people are. But um, you know, these celebrities, a lot of these celebrities, especially these reality celebrities or these, uh-huh. you know weird tier celebrities that you don't even know why they're famous, you know, quite. Um, you know, they make a lot of their money slash all of their money, uh, from branding franchise. Yeah. And I mean, like, just- yeah, franchising is the way to go, man. That's why, you know, like I sell like in my classes, you know, uh, uh, pencils with my name on them to all my students. Well, no, man, this is what I'm driving at. Let me like, stop. Let's like, just to kind of, uh, circle this back into the writing realm, you know, why is there not uh, cross promotions available for like? Why does Stephen King not have his own fragrance or his own, his own uh, like? Oh brand? God, it'd be it'd be so cliche. That's why. Yeah, <laughs> some kind of like ink pen or typewriter or why not? Yeah, that's a good question. You, you know what? That's we ought to call. Could you have three way on this? We could call Stephen King. Well, I mean, and talk to him about his fragrance. It would be dark. You call it dark by Stephen King. It'd be musty. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's a lot of different ways that it could go, but I just think that, like, you know, somewhere in the, uh, you know, in the writing realm, there have to be, you know, related products. Like, why are writers not getting in on this? All these idiots from reality television are making 50, mm-hmm. $50 million dollars a year selling like you know shorts or whatever oh james franco will give james franco two years he'll have a uh he'll have a product that yeah. guy he's awesome man he'll have something for everybody he's a, yeah he's all over the map um he is man a guy he's a renaissance man it's what he is <laughs> he is he, he is. might be cool yeah like it, he was almost gonna go to u of h and this is when i was teaching at uh uhv University of Houston, Victoria, one of the satellite schools. And I was like, man, I really hope he either does. I want to meet him. What if he's a cool guy? But then he didn't. I, you know, and so I, I didn't get to meet him. I, it's a weird thing. And it's funny because he's become a huge curiosity in like the literary, like on, on the literary web. You know, it's just odd that this sort of leading man actor guy is suddenly getting his MFA and getting his PhD. And you know what I'm saying? Like getting, yeah. this, getting this invested in literature and publishing books and stuff. And, uh, Here's what I think. I, I don't know a damn thing about him other than what I see on the internet. And at the very least, it's, it sounds like an admirable tack to take. It's better than be, like the Kardashians, whatever they're doing. Like sure. he's, he's going out and he's learning about what he's interested in and he's reading books. Like that sounds good to me, you know? Yeah, a lot of people are, you know, mad at him that he exists or, you know, they like to poke fun of him or whatever. And, you know, it's. <laughs> And that's kind of the the problem with like hipster literary scene, right? Is that uh, once you become successful, you are a target, right? Like if anything good happens for you, well, then everybody's going to talk shit about you, right? I mean, that's kind of the the thing. And yeah, I mean, he's kind of done it differently, right? Because he came in after the fact, right? He had fame, and then he came in, right? Um, you know, but he might do a lot of good things. You know, he might get more people interested in getting MFAs, which, right, you know, that's not a bad thing, I don't guess. And uh, if, you know, 5,000 people bought his book because they just know Spider-Man and then they buy Ben Marcus's books, nothing wrong with that, you know, because Ben Marcus blurbed him, I think. And, uh, you know, I don't know. I mean, it, it's like the literary world is – mad that there's a more noticeable figure in it or something i don't know it's- well let's talk about this this is an interesting subject like the the 
uh, the you know the envy that exists in the literary yeah. world. And like I'm trying to, and, you know, it exists in all professions. It exists sure. as part of human nature. But when I think about the web and I think about writers and I think about writers and their 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 sort of duck to water um, uh, ability to uh, acclimate to social media. You know what I'm saying? It's like we're writers, so of course we're going to be writing. Stuff, oh yeah, yeah. We're going to enjoy writing status updates, and we're going to blog, and we're going to talk about what's on our minds. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Maybe to a level that say actors do not on the web. You know, like maybe some yeah. actors some actors blog, and some actors write books, and some actors write poetry, but they don't do it like writers do it. And so I'm wondering if the expression of our envy might be more naked and public than say the expression of envy in the actor's realm, which tends to happen like over dinners or in apartments or in, you know what I'm saying? Like social gatherings as opposed to publicly on online. I think that's a rosy way of looking at it. I mean, and, I, and, and by that, I got to speak it all out. I, I think that, uh, all, all those people in the other professions, right. Um, they get to go do really awesome stuff all the time, right? Where writers are a little more chained to their computers, right? And I think just being sedentary in the first place, right, is not a very happy thing to do, right? And so you feel that kind of bravery that you can only feel when you're alone and your face is lit up by a computer screen, right? And you, you do kind of, I think there is this kind of idea, right, that like you can just write anything, you know? And when you're just using social media, I think everybody gets a little bit more brave in in terms of they don't necessarily feel like they're actually doing it. It It's going through a filter or whatever. And so that they may be one, they're talented with words and two, they're not filtering themselves as much because there's this perceived filter in front of them. And so, yeah, I mean, yeah, you, you see a little bit more bile probably, and, it, and, and right, yeah, it is through a particular medium because, you know, I mean, most writers are, golly, how much time do most writers spend just looking at their computers every day? Yeah, yeah. Either, either, either writing or distracting themselves, you know, from writing, the thing that will ultimately, of course, be the great American everything or, well, you know, wherever yeah. they're from. Well, and I think about like, you know, I think about how much like, like true like uh, hatred and, and bile that has been. Uh, spewed in the direction of like Jonathan Franzen, for example, who got the cover of Time magazine where it literally called him the great American novelist. And like, listen, I'm sure he said that maybe he said things uh, in the press or publicly or he's demonstrated an attitude that's rubbed people the wrong way. Like, you know, who knows? You know, like I don't to be honest with you, like I don't I don't feel a lot of that. I don't feel a lot of that animosity. And I don't I don't pay maybe I don't pay close enough attention, even though I do this show and I'm immersed in the web like i don't get all hot and bothered about that stuff i think like if i have you know any element of that to my personality it would be when i'm thinking about like like i'll give you a a recent specific example where i've been like questioning my behavior in my own mind for the past several days wondering like am i an asshole like am i secretly thinking Mm -hmm. that i'm better than this and it comes to things like awp and uh what's the one in new york bea and, yeah. and everybody on my freaking Facebook wall being like, are you going to be at AWP? Are you going to go to BA? And I'm just like, what is this? The you gone? <laughs> no, I don't want to go. I, people want, you know, somebody like, you should go. You got to you got to be there. I'm like, dude. Have you ever gone or no? I went to Chicago last year at AWP. Like, out of a, Do you have a good time or not? You know, and this I talked about it on the show a little bit, I think. And it, I, I, I tried. I think I did have fun, if I'm being honest. I liked talking to people and meeting certain was people. It, but that was your first one, right? Yeah, but I found it exhausting. See? 
See, my first one I really, really enjoyed, and that was in D.C. And I walked around. I was like, so cool to see all these people. I had a good time, you know. And last year I went to Chicago. The first one I felt exhausting, right? The problem is, is that when you're walking around on the floor there on the book fair, you start looking around, and you get the serious sense that you're about a half step away from dressing up like Chewbacca and going to a Star Wars convention. <laughs> right, right. And <laughs> last last year, I mean, I had a really big first day there. I had a bunch of stuff going on, readings and all kinds of stuff. The second day, I just couldn't even talk myself in well, even my hotel room for a while. You know, like it was tough, you know. And um, Yeah, I, I just didn't know what to do with myself. I was handing out flyers. It's a, and basically. Yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot of people. A lot of, it, it's a lot of the stuff that I think writers get into writing to avoid. You know, networking. I mean, I guess you have to do some of that, right? And there's a historical precedent for it, for being right visual, like Mark Twain or Oscar Wilde, and those people like were very visual people. By visual, I mean socially visible, sure. uh, uh, visible. Um, but I think right there's that whole other kind of Thomas Pynchon component to it, where it's like I, you know, nobody ever sees me or whatever. And uh, yeah, when you go to AWP, man, it's all on your face for like three days. And like somebody like me, who's from a small town, is like I live in a small town. Right, so it's always in the winter, so it's colder than I experienced for the rest of the year, and it's always in a town bigger than I live in. Right, like the the just sheer shock to every aspect of my being, right, is just on brutal display, <laughs> and like I mean, I go and I'm gonna go again this year. But damn if I don't have, like, the worst kind of existential crisis when I get home, man. I always, like, think about just, like, never writing ever again and, ne- you know, never doing anything ever again with, you know, anything with publishing. Like, I, I, it always makes me very, like, morbid for, like, <laughs> like I just feel very, like, just mm, yeah, <laughs> for yeah, days. Yeah, and so I'm, like, sitting here going through it, and I was talking to somebody, and I was like, I, I can't deal with those things, and it's like, what, do I think I'm better? Like, why don't I go participate in the community? Why don't I go meet people? Why don't I, you know, why am I being such a dick about this? It's a party for books. I like books. Like, you see what I'm saying? It's yeah, like- but it is, and it, you know, I mean, but it, there's 10,000 people there. Like, how is that any kind of natural showing of what it is that we do? Yeah. You know, I mean. Right, well, and it, it also it, it, Go ahead. It's very, it's very, it's very different, and it's very foreign for most. Like you know, the readings that we'll have down here, you know, and uh, uh, you know, there'll be a hundred people. I don't know if it's really, really good, you know, and and, and like you know, a lot of people, you know, uh, and um, I mean that, that is very different than like you know walking the the book fair and you know being like literally surrounded by. 5,000 people who are doing one of two things, right? Selling their books or trying really hard to get published. Right. And that weird nervous energy, man, it just creeps all over you, you know? I mean, it's very odd. The first one I went to, I accidentally went into a panel where Alan Heathcock and the other people, I can't even remember who it was. And they were talking about their first experience publishing a book. And, and like Al was on... Gray Wolf and the other people were all on like one one of the big six. I think maybe maybe one of the maybe one of them is like on a university press, right? Like four people on one of the big six, and then Al's on Gray Wolf, which is you know they just did you see that recent article where Gray Wolf was like where are you were because the big six now, which they are. I mean Gray Wolf quick says, 
But um, yeah, so I'm sitting there in this, and it's all about like the whole panel is about what to do or what you're supposed to expect from your first published book experience, right? My, I had a book coming out in like two months from Texas Review Press. I was supposed to be in a different panel. I wanted to see Hannah Tinty and some other people. I can't remember for what. But right, so all these people, man, it was like packed. The whole house was packed of all these people who didn't have books but wanted books. And not only did they want books, but they wanted books on the big six, you know. And they wanted to hear like these love stories and these grand love stories about having these right, excellent books on, you know, one of the big six and how they'd be famous someday or some crap. And just the tension there, you know, and the lust for that kind of attention and everything. It is exhausting because you're feeling these people's like life dream, like just palpitating right beneath their skin. And uh, you have to like sit next to that, you know, it's like, it's basically like standing next to a bunch of people having an orgasm. And I had no (laughs) idea what that would be like, but I'm sure that afterwards you'd be tired. (laughs) (laughs) That's it. And, you know, that, that gets to, I guess, it's like a lot of ambition in one room, and it's a lot of similar and recognizable ambition. And then uh, there's just something junior high-ish and prom-like about it that I can't quite put my, you know, that's the best I can describe it. But it feels like uh, maybe it, it carries with it, like you're saying. Uh, you know, maybe we're talking about the same thing. It, it just seems to carry with it a lot of that same maybe similar nervous energy where you're in the junior high school cafeteria you know, trying to figure out which table to sit at or something like that. Well, you're married, right? You're married. You've never gone on, like, a double date with, like, somebody who's, like, on an early date. You know, like, so you, it's a, you, your wife, and, like, one of my, like, like so, like, say, for instance, if me and my wife take out one of my friends and one of my wife's friends to try to, like, hook them up. You know, like, or, yeah, I mean, I've never actually done this, but I'm just in theory, <laughs> Right. right, like it'd be it's it's like watching the first date of like five thousand people. Yeah, so exactly same kind of thing, right? Like that junior high, like oh my god, it's like can we hold hands? <laughs> like I'm so afraid I'm gonna fart, <laughs> you know, or or something, right? And you're just watching it, right? You know, it's like oh my god. And, and yet, in the first time I went, I think I was a little bit more like that for about the first day, and then I was like very aware. That you know, there's just too much going on, and then you know. So I think that's you know you have to just kind of people watch. Yeah. I guess- Last year though, I think I was there for three days: Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And on Thursday, like I flew out at six in the morning. I got there, got my hotel, went to a reading, went to another reading. I think I went to a third reading. Hugged Dan Schoen coming up from from a bar, which was creepy by his account <laughs> dan dan if you're listening uh, no, no no i think we, we've talked about it since then okay. and then like the next day it's like ah. <laughs> i don't want to do anything else with awp yeah well you know it just you burn out i think you burn out and i don't know if i'll go it's boston right boston in february or whatever i'm looking forward to it i'm gonna you know it i'm gonna i'm gonna go and uh but i'm uh, I think I'm going to be much more selective about – I think that's the thing. You get more and more selective the more and more you go. Yeah. Well, we'll see what and, happens. And not necessarily in a bad way. I mean, you know, look, it's always good people and stuff. It's just so – it's just so much. It's yeah. always so much. Yeah. Well, let's get back to your uh, biography. So you uh, raised in Texas. <laughs> Dad's a preacher, moving her all over Texas. Um, what kind of kid were you? Were you, were you uh, into this from a young age? Uh, books and writing and stuff? Yeah, I mean, did you know from a young age, has this always been the vector that you've been on, or is it something that you came to later? 
Yeah, no, uh, always was in the books. Um, my grandfather, gave, my grandfather used to always like tell me like ghost stories, right? And so I have this really awesome old Eddie Allen Poe book that he gave me like for Christmas when I was like six, right? And uh, I was really into Eddie Allen Poe when I was a kid, mainly probably because I got that book, but in like this weird way, like because right, a lot of Poe's poems are acrostic and stuff, and I was always really interested in finding the names and the poems and crap like that. And uh, and then. I mean, I was I was a good student probably up until my middle school years, and then I got really rebellious. I mean, like re- like pretty bad rebellious. Like, um, uh, not like you know, I never went to like you know prison or anything rebellious, but like I did stuff that was just stupid. And uh, like what? Like you're stealing cars and stuff? Like what was? Ah, uh, no, I, didn't, I never stole cars, but there was this kid. Uh, there was this girl named. Leanne, I think it was her name, and her brother used to buy auction cars, right? But they'd be missing stuff, like antennas and things. And so we would wander wander around the neighborhoods. This is when I was living in Plano, Texas, like stealing antennas and little things off cars. Bought a gun at school one time. Um, you bought a gun or you brought a gun? No, I bought one. It was really kind of a weird thing. We didn't take one. Uh, there was this girl, and she had a gun that she was going to sell to somebody, but he was sick that day <laughs> or something, <laughs> and she told me that, you know, and I was like, well, shit, I'll buy it. You know, I just had money on me. <laughs> I was going to say. You just, just... just ridiculous crap like that, you know, would yeah. skip school. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it was... <laughs> At the time, like when I bought the gun, I was like, hell yeah, <laughs> this is my lucky day. You know, now looking back at it, I'm just like, oh my God, you, yeah, you idiot. Get, you, listen, you, know? you, you do that today, you get expelled. You're done, right? <laughs> uh, I think you might even get worse than expelled. Yeah. Like, yeah, but, you know, in, in, in light of recent, uh, you know, violent tragedies. Yeah, no, but at the time, I don't know, it seemed like the right thing to do. Yeah, no, I mean, I remember, uh, I remember in, in high school, I want to say somebody got caught with a gun in their locker back in, you know, I went to high school, this is the 1990s, so then I remember he, I want to say he got expelled or he got at least uh, suspended for a while, and then there was a kid in my college dorm room who shot a pistol out of his window. Um, I think he was like trying to shoot a deer. I mean, I went to Colorado, it yeah. was crazy, but he got kicked out of school. That was it. Oh, dude, I, my buddy's cousin in high school, my favorite, like, gun school story that I have, because it's the only one with a happy ending, because the, the, the only person that got hurt is the person who gets punished. He was sitting with a gun in a truck in the parking lot of my high school, and I was sitting out, for whatever reason, I was probably skipping class, I was in the parking lot, too. We hear a gunshot, right? All these cops show up and stuff. This kid had bought a, a gun, right, in in the truck. Not brought it, but purchased it in the in the truck, and he had shot himself in the foot, <laughs> messing with it. I guess checking it out. So the person who was selling it to him ended up taking the gun and running away. Well, the kid who shot himself, when the cops show up, he tells him there was a drive-by, right? <laughs> like so, he tries to pretend like somebody drove by and. You know, shot his foot, I guess. You know, they had a hit out for his foot. <laughs> they ended up finding the gun and stuff, you know, and uh, he ended up getting expelled. And I don't know. I don't know what happened to that kid. I don't know him too well. Like I said, it was a friend of mine's cousin. But, no, that was the funniest crap. I, what a dumbass. But, 
but books, <laughs> going back uh, to books, yeah, no, I mean, like, I was always into books, but I was probably, like, you know, semi-deviant books, right? Like, I liked the Beatniks, or the Beats, rather. They hate it when you call them the Beatniks. They get all messed, messed up and sad. <laughs> um, and, like, it, you know, I remember in high school, like, Train Spotting was a pretty interesting book for me. Um, Edgar Allan Poe and stuff like that when I was younger. Uh, but I think, you know, I kind of wanted to be a musician when I was young and, and, and I would just like write songs and lyrics and stuff like that. And then do you play an instrument? Yeah, guitar. Yeah. And well, you know, all the, I can play all the garage band instruments, but the, the guitar is the only one I can play a little bit more proficiently. Right. I mean, you know, I, I can play scales and stuff, you know what I mean? Right. Not, I'm not great. <laughs> um, uh, but, um, when I was 19, I was living in Austin, and there was a uh, a magazine called Salt for Slugs there, and they had what was it, it called? Was like a little indie magazine, <laughs> and it was there, and it was wait, in wait, Portland. Wait, what, what, what was the name of the magazine? Salt for Slugs. Okay, Salt for Slugs. And um, JB, the guy who pretty much ran it, JB White, James Bernard White, was a waiter with my, at a place where my brother was a waiter. And he came over to the apartment one time, and I asked him if I could write some stuff for the magazine. And I wrote a little for the magazine, and then I would I learned a little bit of layout and stuff for it. And then I decided I wanted to study journalism. And right after that, I started reading. Like anybody who had been a journalist and then became a fiction writer, right? I got kind of affiliated with right, like. Uh, like Hemingway, right, or um, Hunter S. Thompson, right, and um, and then you know there was that, I guess. So the yeah, just started writing more and more for other magazines or newspapers, you know, whatever I could get uh, in terms of like stringing or whatever, and then started trying to do fiction. Did you did you go to the University of Texas? Is that why you mean you, were, you didn't? You were just no, like, I was in Austin and I was working. I was a terrible high school student. Um, and I didn't want to go to college and I moved to Austin just because I needed to get out. Of, I didn't need to get out of Corpus, but like a lot of my friends were starting to get mixed up in drugs and stuff. And so I left Corpus and went to Austin and worked and went to Austin community college. I ended up getting my undergrad from us from down here at a satellite school of UT called the university of Texas, Pan American. And that's also where I got my MFA. Um, my undergrad's in journalism, though. Oh, it is. Okay. So you had that. I mean, you had that in mind from an educational standpoint, and then you immediately transitioned from the undergraduate into your MFA, or did you take time off in between? I immediately transitioned, but the thing is, like, my undergrad, you know, I kind of broke it up because I went to culinary school. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Uh, so talk about during that. During my. Was that? I said, talk about that. Like, what, what prompted that? Um. I had always cooked. Okay, so like when I left high school, I wasn't really quite ready to go into any kind of higher ed. And I'd always kind of worked in restaurants. Um, and when I was going to journalism school, I started reading Anthony Bourdain. And I don't know, like at the time, if you'd read Anthony Bourdain and you'd, you were in a journalism school, right, and like you had done some cooking you had to go to culinary school, right? I mean, like, and, and even now, like, I honestly think that he's the most 
like in terms of the world, like things that he's done and the, how the world has changed, he he might be the most influential writer alive. Um, because just the, what, I mean, the, the things that he's written have changed the way that people behave on a socio-political way that I don't know that any other writer has affected people that way. Can, you know, can, like, can you drill it down a little bit? Like, what do you, do you have any specific like memory? Well, or thing? Like, so for instance, like, okay. So if you go to Austin now, Austin's always been a good restaurant town. If you go to the east side of uh sixth street, which used to be the ghetto, right? It's, it's extremely gentrified now, and there's food trucks for like a m- half a mile. Food trucks everywhere, right? Serving this like street style food. Well, street style food wasn't even nearly important until after Anthony Bourdain wrote books like A Cook's Tour, you know. And and, and just I mean, like so Anthony Bourdain is he's a culinary writer. Uh, he also writes mystery novels. I haven't read any of them though. I probably should have, but. Um, but right, the things that he wrote about like street food and like just changing the philosophy of the way that people should think about food and changing the philosophy of the way that people should think about uh, other cultures, right? And, 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 and having a higher regard for other less uh, civilized cultures, you know, because they do have this sort of um, uh, tie to their food that's, you know, like on a more daily level. And it's all food based, right? Like everything he writes is, you know, food driven. But it's, it's like completely changed like the whole uh, restaurant scene in the United States, right? And I mean, it's just writing, you know, yeah. just writing that's done that. Well, he lives this great life. I mean, it's just, you know, I've watched that show. I haven't read his, his uh, culinary books, but I've watched his show a million times. And, um, you know, you sort of envy him. He just travels around and eats food and weird Oh, places. yeah. That's <laughs> you know, a great well, he, I mean, he's very, he's very much just gonzo. I mean, it's basically just gonzo journalism. Um. Right, but he's very well read, and like even if you watch the show, he's always reading, he's always quoting people. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's become a little bit of a parody of himself, and I think that's why he's kind of hanging it up. But when I was, you know, twenty-one, he was, you know, in his prime <laughs> or whatever. Right, and you know, all, all my buddies at culinary school were fairly envious of him, and, and even you know now the culinary schools have kind of changed in terms of what they try to produce as a product. You know, uh, they, they definitely, it's less hot cuisine, right? Like all the, you know, it's top down style stuff. It's much more like, let's look at the roots of these different cultures and then try to produce this. And that's really all about, you know, his writing and, and the way that he, you know, really kind of focused in on these, you know, previously lesser thought of uh, 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 styles of uh, of cuisine. Yeah, like what it's, is it, what is it about that? It's like it's like people want, you know, because like foodie culture. Um, I was talking about this today earlier with a friend over lunch. Like, you know, how much how much better food has gotten in our lifetimes? Like when I was a kid, yeah. it was like macaroni and cheese and like a hot dog. You know what I'm saying? Like that's what yeah. we grew up on in the Midwest, and um, you know, lots of lots of soft drinks and lots of processed foods and lots of this, that, and the other. And, you know, I, I think a lot of it was just we didn't know better or we didn't have the money to go out and buy more expensive food or whatever the case may be. But, you know, a lot of times, honestly, the stuff that has been cheaper is is, is better. It's just, I mean, I think that so much of it is, you know, right, we're, we're a suspect of the people who advertise to us now in a way that I don't think we've ever been. Um, I, I think the lines of communication are there a little bit more now, though. If you look at like early cookbooks, American cookbooks, I mean, they always kind of spoke the same sort of 
truth that you hold dear to now. I think that people are more into interactivity now than they've ever been. And right, so like convenience is still important, but people like to have that sort of interactive exchange, right? Like TV is less uh, mesmerizing now because we have tablets where we can touch the screen and do stuff, right? And I, I think there's a lot to that, right, to where you can watch a show and then try to replicate the things that they do, right? And um, and that's always been a part of TV, right, because there's always been cooking shows, or there have always been exercise shows and that kind of stuff. But I think people are just more in tune with that these days, well, the that, interactivity aspect. Well, and that's the other thing. But when you talk about, like, the cultural aspects of food and you talk about uh, Bourdain, like, going <clears> – excuse me – into, like, the <clears> – <throat> You know the the neighborhoods that I don't know that it, it, the word that, that is like appearing in my head is authenticity, and it's like sure. people want to have an authentic experience, and people want to feel connected to yeah. a culture, and they want to feel like they're getting the real thing as be- a, re, a, re, a real kind of tourism, as opposed to. So I don't know. It's either right. I, I mean, is it, are we worse of ugly Americans for that, or are we less? You know what I mean, like. I mean, is it more voyeuristic, right? Or is it more like, you know, like like you you respect the culture and you want to witness it as it is? Um, but yeah, there's a lot more of that, right? I mean, you definitely do. You want to see – you don't need to be tantalized as much. You don't need to be uh, impressed as much with, like – you don't want somebody to pull out all the stops. You want somebody to show – uh, you what they do kind of on a day to day right basis right which yeah and, and I don't know what is it? yeah because it, it might be that we're just so much more like like the reality of things now less fanfare I don't uh, know do y'all have China at your house no like, yeah I don't really either like, but my mom did yeah my mom did growing up we had a China set of China but like we haven't even thought about it I mean I guess we should have gotten that for our wedding or something but, uh, but I wonder if that if in some way that speaks to that right like that just kind of like over the top ceremony that people are just kind of over you know I don't want to see everybody's Sunday best right I don't know that's hmm. so do weird. you so do you cook at home like are you just like yeah I do I'm not I'm not near as good as I used to be because um, once you Two things really happen to you bad in the restaurant industry. One, uh, well, you pick up demons, right? Like meaning, like I can't cook without hearing ex-chefs screaming at me. You know, you fucked it up. You're going too slow. That kind of shit. You know what I mean? So yeah. it becomes a very anxious endeavor, even when it's just like me cooking for me and my wife. Um, and then, like the you know, the stuff that I like to make is not what other people would consider like kind of fancy, you know, whatever. So like if I had people over to like eat and I cook, they'd probably be like, this is, you know, like, but why you know, didn't you use truffles and shit? No, <laughs> but that's the thing, you know, you talk to chefs like, <clears throat> you know, so who was I talking to? Somebody would seen like Mario Batali around town in Los Angeles yeah. and he'll, he'll go out with his chefs after, um, you know, after work or from the restaurant and they go to like a deli. You know what I'm saying? Oh, dude, I mean, I'm telling you, the best things are, like, the most simple stuff. Or, you know, like, my the best thing is, like, to take something that is kind of shit, meaning, like, a bad cut of food. You know, not, not bad, like, rotten, but, like, you know, just sinewy or whatever. And, like, the low, low slow-cooked stuff. And, like, almost salvage ingredients from being deplorable, but they make them good. Um, but most people just want 
you know, good food, they want it to be, you know, like these good restaurant foods, but things like salmon and ribeye, right? All these things that, you know, like are high dollar items at restaurants, they're high dollar items at restaurants because one, they're delicious. Yeah. But two, they're just easy to make, you know, they're easy to mass produce and stuff. And, um, yeah, but so like my favorite things are like, you know, just cheap stuff, you know, cheap like, things. Like what? What's like a, what's a, what's a Brian Carr specialty? Like I like to like braise uh braise ribs, like short ribs. Um I like to make polenta. I like to uh Yeah, the those would be my favorite things. Anything braised, you know, anything that's like like I like to cook things for like, you know, twenty four hours. <laughs> you know, like uh for like a long time or or you know, I'm from Texas so I like to like smoke stuff too. But I'm not as good at smoking. I'm much better at uh What is bra- at, what does braising even mean? That's how bad I am. I don't even know. <laughs> It's like a two-tiered like cooking process to where like you sear like you cook it like in a pan, but then like you would add like uh, a liquid and then cook it like really low and slow. Ah, uh, okay. So it's like you're getting. I always wanted I always wanted to be a saucier, right? Like when I was a cook, I always wanted to just be the guy who makes like stocks and sauces. Yeah. So that's the other thing I can do kind of well is like soups and sauces and stuff like that. So okay, so you did culinary school, and then then what? Like, so you you do that, and then how do you fall back into the writing thing, or did that kind of? Did you- Came back down here, and I uh, I was cooking, and then I met my wife, and she was a teacher, and um, our schedules were completely different. We were living together, right, and like. I was coming home at one in the morning and she was going to work at seven in the morning or even earlier. Right. So our schedules were completely different. And so I decided to go back to journalism school. I hadn't finished yet. And that's at the same time I quit cooking and I ended up, uh, working as a special ed aide at a middle school. Right. So I worked in a little self-contained unit. It was me and three students and a teacher above me. Um, the students were what they call severe and profound special needs students, right? And then <clears throat> while I was doing that, I finished my journalism degree, and I was also at the same time like writing for my school paper again, writing for various papers around here. And then I started reading more fiction and think and reading, you know, it had never occurred to me, like read the bios of the writers, you know? And I started like, I don't know why it just never, I, I just never really thought about it like that, you know? And I started noticing the word MFA popping up in bios. Right. And it was really kind of weird. Uh, the, the school down here added an MFA program, like the year, that I graduated from my undergrad and I had thought I was going to go somewhere else, you know? Um, but then one of the teachers out here, Eric Miles Williamson, who wrote a book called East Bay Grease, came out on Picker door in like 1999. Um, he, and he has other books since then, but East Bay Grease is his most well known. He and I got together one day and he was like, you know, just come here, you know, or whatever. And, uh, and then, so I, so I ended up getting the MFA. And, then, and I mean, I taught while I got my MFA, though. Like, I mean, I taught special ed at a high school and got my MFA in about two years. And then what did you – did you work on a, like, short bus when you were in graduate school? Like, what happened? Mm-hmm. 
That's what it was. Like your your thesis. yeah. I mean, short bus was pretty much done. It was was my thesis. I think I added some stories to it. Um, but right, like uh, I mean, the story short bus. I mean, you know, like I mean, it all deals about you know, like with my work um, with the special needs kids. And I mean, not all because right there's a bank robbery kind of scene in it and stuff, but um, that didn't happen. But uh, but that should have that would have been badass. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, no, I mean I I pieced together most of that while I was you know for two years I taught at a high school down here with about twenty special needs students and about twelve paraprofessionals. I had this huge staff, you know, like all these. It was a gigantic thing, right? And um, did that. Got my MFA. Uh, then I got a job at uh, South Texas College down here and put out short bus. And then uh, last year I, I taught at University of Houston, Victoria. But things happened. We came back down. Came back down. <laughs> I mean, it was a good experience. Like, they were really cool with me at UHV. You know, they wanted me to stay and stuff, and I liked them and everything. The Family stuff. The I don't know if the the wife was a giant Victoria fan, so right. we didn't stay there too long. <laughs> right, right. Um, and so now, uh, like, what's next for you? Like, what do you what, do? You have like a do you have a plan, or are you just kind of taking it one day at a time? Oh, uh, that's the thing. You know, I mean, I definitely had a plan. <laughs> like when I was at UHV, right? The whole idea was is that I would teach there for a while and then try to transition into. Uh, uh, an MFA more, you know, style job or right? a CW department or whatever. I do really like enjoy, uh, I mean, right now, you know, it's, it's basically a two year college setting. We have some bachelor degrees and stuff, but, uh, you know, for the most part, I just teach, you know, I teach comp and rec, but it's nice though, because right. Like it's, uh, I don't know, man, to a certain extent, I feel like when you teach, you know, certain types of students are preaching to the choir, maybe or whatever. I don't know. Like all my students are resistant, you know, to the idea of books and reading. And then so it's good to see, you know, to be able to persuade them into the idea that perhaps it's worth their time. Right. Um. And you know, I get a hundred. So you're, you're converting people. You see what you're doing? This is it. This is your conversion right here. Well, yeah, it, probably, it, it very well might be. I think everybody should be doing it, though. I don't think that the most talented writers of our generation should be teaching 15 people a semester. I, I mean, I think that I think there's something kind of hideous about that. You know, like the the better you get at writing, the the fewer students you have. I I, I don't I don't know. There's something about that sits silly on me. Like, why would that be? Right. So you're. You're an infectious personality who's a very strong writer, so let's give you fewer people. Yeah. Well, like, what what kind of corner are we looking to paint ourselves into? <laughs> <It's a> like, <laughs> yeah. But, you know, it goes back to, like, the whole thing with, like, you know, disengagement from social media and the kind of pension-esque writers. Like, <laughs> it's, a, it's a luxury. It's a luxury. I it is a luxury. No, and it's a good thing. Like, I, you know, and I'm sure that, like, if somebody called me up and was like, hey, man, you want to make 80 grand and have 30 students a year? Yeah. Well, okay. Sure. <laughs> right. And I'm sure there, there's an anger component. Or not anger component to it, but, you know, you think about it. But like when you do say it out loud, right? It's it does seem a little bit odd because the people people who apply for MFAs they've already been won over, yeah. you know. And even if they don't get an MFA, they're probably going to continue to read and write anyway. Right. 
Okay. And they, you know, they need their degrees so that they can do things or whatever. And I understand, and, and, you know, the MFA does sort of a very valid point and stuff, and it it builds a lot of skill and all that kind of stuff. But um, are they necessary in the in the fashion that they're that they exist? I don't know. I mean, I went to the worst MFA program in the nation. If you look at Seth Abramson's rating of MFA programs. And I danced circles around tons of people who were in the top 20 in terms of, like, publication and stuff. Right. Right. I mean, and that sounds arrogant, but I don't care. He said that my school was the worst, you know? You know what I mean? Like, so, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm, the MFAs, and I, I don't rail against them or whatever, but there's definitely, like, this weird sort of, oh, I went to thing with them. That I don't necessarily know needs to exist either. Yeah. Well, and it's just like, you, like you say, like uh, you know, the, your program also happens to be relatively new, so it doesn't have a long time to develop a legacy. And then, um, I, you know, you, well, I mean, even if it had, I mean, you know, it, it, it the, the whole rating system to me is, you know, I, I think if you really, I don't know, I mean, the way I thought about it and the way it was sold to me, you know, but it, it's like, I mean, if you. If you think you're a badass, then why do you need to go to one of the most badass ones? Right, right. <laughs> I can, you know, I like, can flourish and, at the worst one in the country, baby. <laughs> that, yeah, I mean, you need to have that kind of passive-aggressive stamp across your chest. <laughs> it's not going to get any easier once you leave. That's right. Well, that's never, the, the easiest I ever had it was when I was in graduate school. You got a, you got a structure. You got a place to hide. You know, it was great. You got friends, friends in good places. That's Where'd right. you go? Uh, USC, right here in Los Angeles. That's why I Percival, Percival Everett was there, right? Uh, no, well, no? Maybe, maybe he was there like the year after. I'm trying uh, to okay. Think. Like it was, I was when uh, Hubert Selby Jr. was still alive. He was my teacher, and oh, all right, all right. Um, you know, and I had several others, but but Selby was probably the 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 big ticket name, the main one. Yeah, I met I met Percival last year. He's a sweet guy, real Where, down to earth. Where'd you meet him at? Uh, he came down for reading at American Book Review. Okay. At UHV. Yeah, they just reviewed. Um, they just reviewed a. Gave us a nice review for a book on the uh, the Nervous Breakdown imprint. Oh, rock on! Yeah. Oh, th- yeah. No, I set that up, man. Kind of, not really. Shane Jones wrote it, right? Well, he wrote, he reviewed the site, and then they reviewed the uh, the beautiful anthology, which is a book that we did. Oh, cool. Yeah, so that was helpful. We appreciate that. Hey, man, no problem. No, yeah, no. So, uh, yeah, Percival came down. Uh, he, God, he was a sweet guy. Like, uh, yeah, he really struck me as a really nice person. Cool. Um, you know, the, the, that was the cool thing about UHV, right? Is we were always having like you know decent writers come through to read at the ABR thing and stuff. Sure. Which was good and bad because right, it didn't matter who they were. You had to show up and be nice to them. <laughs> which is odd, right? Like if you're just like kind of fundamentally against the way somebody writes or thinks about the world, you know, right? And you have to like for a day and a half be like, oh, I'm so happy that you're here. <laughs> and then like, you know, for like three days, you just feel like a terrible human being. It's like it's called <laughs> academic decorum, you know? Very, you know, and that's one thing, like, my whole idea is that I would move up, you know, university wrongs and stuff, but the, to a certain extent, that academic decorum stuff just makes me tired. <laughs> it's, like a, it's like AWP, dude. Just it sucks it, the life from your body. It does. <laughs> it, you got to be very. I mean, and I don't mind being cordial. 
But what I don't like is that a lot of times with academic decorum, there's like these very high level insults that you just, you don't even necessarily understand it. You just know that it's like, that, you know, there's like, I don't know. It's very odd. Not insults, but just uh, inside jokes that maybe I don't, I can't get because I didn't study enough theory or something. I'm not sure. <laughs> right, right. The old like Foucault jokes or whatever. And... Yeah, you know, oh, you said Montaigne, it's Montagna. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, uh, yeah, go polish your penny loafers. <laughs> Uh, well, listen, man, it's been fun talking with you and, uh, I've really enjoyed it. It's been great to hear what you've got going on and you know, how you, uh, how you came up in Texas and whatnot. And I congratulate you on the new book and I wish you all the best of luck, uh, going forward. So, uh, all right. Hey man, thanks for having me on, man. Okay, guys, that is it. That's the program. That's Brian Allen Carr. Go get his new book. It is called Vampire Conditions. It is out there now from Holler Presents. You can find Brian online at vampireconditions.com. He's on the Facebook, and he's also on the Twitter, where his handle is at Brian Allen Carr. Thank you to Kill Rockstars for all the great music. Thanks to the band Stereo Total for the theme song music. The song that you're currently hearing, of course, is Old Lang Syne. This is not a Kill Rockstars song, but under normal circumstances, all of the music that you hear on this program comes to us via the fine people at Kill Rockstars, so be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Uh, it's late here. It's very late. I'm wrapping things up. Uh, I can actually hear helicopters right now, and I don't know if you can hear that with the music, but uh, I think what this means is that the Los Angeles police are chasing someone uh, in my neighborhood, in the vicinity, which uh, sadly <laughs> happens uh, with alarming frequency, like two or three times a week it seems like. And uh, this begs the question, if you need a helicopter to chase someone, who exactly are you chasing? Like for real. Uh, please remember that Jackson Pollock liked to bake pies and that Pablo Neruda died of leukemia. That's all for now, folks. Thanks for listening. Thanks for being here. I'll be back in just a few days with another show. Happy New Year to everybody. I uh, hope you have a good New Year's Eve. Be safe. Have some fun. If you are confused and you don't know what to do but you want to do something, here is my advice. Go see some live music. Go hear some live music. Uh, if you're not sure what to do but you want to be active, go to a show. Go to any show. Go into a public space and watch people play instruments. Hear them uh, 9.7 times out of 10. 9.9 times out of 10. It will elevate you. And uh, they will play Old Lang Syne at midnight, which uh, I think is my favorite song of all time. If I had to pick one, I think this is it. And I can't really explain it. I think it makes me happy and sad at the same time. Like, sad it's over, glad it's over. Uh, goodbye 2012 and uh, best of luck to everybody in 2013 I'm going to go watch helicopters chase people thank you <laughs>